All right. <clears throat> Good morning. Could we have the house lights up, please? Thank you. Now I can see you. Okay. Good morning. I knew there were people out there, <clears throat> but the bad thing about sitting on the front row is you never see them. So now I know. Welcome. It's good to see you. It's good to be back in the pulpit. I appreciate Jeremy filling in for me uh, last week. I was a bit under the weather. Um, but we're uh, going to continue this morning in the book of Romans. We've been in Romans for about a year and a quarter or so. <clears throat> Romans was a letter written by the Apostle Paul in around A.D. 55 to 57 to the believers, to the Christians in Rome. <clears throat> and in it, he gives them all kinds of instruction. And so we're going to continue to seek this morning what he has to say. And again, some of these passages, as I study them, I feel like, well, we're just needing to kind of clarify confusing passages. And today is another one of those cases. It's not profound information, but when you read it, it's confusing. And we need to understand what God's Word said. So let's take a look this morning at chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 20 and 21. We'll probably just cover verse 20 today. But let's, let's go ahead and read both of them. That'll close out the chapter. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here at the end of chapter 5 of Romans is this short little paragraph. In some of your Bibles it's set out as a separate paragraph, in others it's not. But just this little couple of verses that a careless reader might be inclined to just overlook. Because they sort of seem to be tacked on as kind of an afterthought to Paul. I mean, we've looked at Paul's argument through the first 19 verses of this chapter, particularly from verse 12 on, where we've seen the contrast between the sin of Adam and its consequences, and then the obedience of Christ and its consequences. And so that's been explained and wrapped up. We're finished with that for now. The sin of Adam led to condemnation and death. The righteousness of Christ leads to justification and eternal life. That's what we've been covering. I mean, it was so important that Paul stated it twice. Once in verse 18, and then a second time in verse 19. So why then, here today, do we have a reintroduction of terms like law, and trespass, and sin, and grace, and death, and righteousness, and eternal life? Those are the terms we see in these two verses. Isn't that redundant? Hadn't we covered that already? 
Wouldn't it be better to just move on to chapter 6 and chapter 7 and let's see what Paul wants to tackle next? Well, these words are not redundant and they're not unimportant and there are a few reasons for this. First of all, they are a summary of what Paul has been saying. That's why these key phrases that we saw all the way from verse 12 to verse 19 are repeated in these two verses. But second, these two verses are sort of a capsule treatment of the themes of chapter 6 and chapter 7. I found one commentator who said that the following chapters are, quote, virtually nothing but an extended commentary on these verses. And then the third thing is that these two verses answer a question that hadn't yet been answered. But it's been suggested by some of the things Paul wrote earlier. And that's the question and the answer that are going to concern us this morning. So verse 20 begins by mentioning the law. So let's back up for a moment and see what Paul has already told us about the law. He said a couple of important things. First thing he said was that the law was not given as a way by which we can be justified. The law wasn't given as a way by which we can be justified. The Jewish people thought differently. They believed that one could be justified by observing the law. I mean, the law was Judaism's greatest treasure. But Paul went to great lengths to convince them otherwise. He would tell them, the law tells you what you should do, but it does not enable you to do it. All it does is reveal to you that you're a sinner. Paul made this clear in Romans chapter 3 where he said in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, the second thing Paul has already said about the law was in uh, verses 12 through 19 that we just wrapped up last time I spoke to you. And that is that the law was not even necessary to condemn us. It was not even necessary to condemn us because we've already been condemned by the sin of Adam. It is because of his trespass not our own, that according to verse 19, the many were made sinners. So the law wasn't even necessary to condemn us. It wasn't a way for us to be justified. So can you see how someone would be confused at this point? A person might say something like, one of you might say something like, Paul, you've shown us that the law was not given as a means of justification, and we, we understand that. We accept that. You've also shown us that the law wasn't even necessary to condemn us because we were already condemned by the sin of Adam. Now that's harder for us to understand, but we'll accept that too for the time being. But look, 
if these two things are true, then please tell us what was the purpose of the law. If we cannot be saved by the law, and if the law isn't even necessary to condemn us, why was it given? What does it do? Does it, in fact, do anything? As we look at it now, the law of God seems to be without a real purpose. So this is the question that has not been answered yet by Paul, but it's been suggested by his mention of the law earlier in Romans 5, particularly verses 13 and 14. So his answer to the question is our text for today, and that is verse 20. The answer is, now the law came in to increase the trespass. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that didn't clarify things at all. In fact, it raised a lot more questions. It creates a new set of problems, doesn't it? Because it seems to say that God wanted more sin, and so he created sin by giving the law. Isn't that what it sounds like? Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But that can't be true. I mean, we believe that the Bible is true, right? Otherwise, I have no idea why you're here this morning. But that can't be true. That's an obvious error. God is not the author of sin. Scripture tells us that. In fact, he doesn't even encourage it. James, the book of James says in chapter 1, let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, so if Romans 5.20 doesn't mean what it looks like it means, then what does it mean? Why is it that according to verse 20, the law came in? Well, a proper approach to this, I think, is to do a word study. And the words that we're going to look at are the words, came in. Now, the law came in. The Greek word there is translated in various ways in different versions of your Bible. Came in is what the Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, and the English Standard Version, which is what we read from this morning, use. Keeps slipping into the picture is what the Phillips translation says. Of course, that's a paraphrase. Now the law keeps slipping into the picture. That's interesting. Uh, the NIV uses the term was brought in. The law was brought in. The New English Bible says it intruded, and today's English version says that it was introduced. So lots of different nuances to some of those translations. But what's interesting is this word, this Greek word in verse 20, for came in, is the same Greek word or the same root word used Back in verse 12, where we talked about sin coming into the world. 
Let's look at that verse. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world, same phrase, through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So there in verse 12, sin came into the world. Back to verse 20, today's text, Paul uses the same root word but adds the prefix para, in which that prefix means alongside of. So here's how to look at that. In verse 12, came into is from the Greek word eserkomai. In verse 20, came in is from the similar word pariserkomai. The literal meaning is the law came in alongside of. The law came in alongside of. So the question is, alongside of what? Well, obviously, it came in alongside of the sin that had already entered into the world. And I point this out because as soon as we see this, as soon as we see that God sent the law to be alongside of sin, then we can understand that the law was meant to exist in relationship to that sin. There's going to be some type of relationship there. In other words, it didn't cause the sin. The law did not cause the sin, but rather it does something to it. It relates to it in a certain way. It came in alongside of it. And since the sentence goes on to say that this was done to increase the trespass, it must mean that the law somehow brought out the true nature and the true magnitude of sin so that it could be seen for what it truly is. So not necessarily to increase the trespass numerically or quantitatively, but to increase our understanding of it, to, uh, to increase the trespass, how we perceive it. Moreover, as we're going to see, it was because of the grace of God and in order that the grace of God might abound, that God did this. That's what the last part of the verse says. But we need to spell this out very carefully. So I found an outline that I really like from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I'm going to borrow from it this morning. As we look at the ways in which the law increased sin, ways in which the law was meant to increase sin, so let's look at the first way, and that is by increasing our knowledge of it. This is what Paul is going to explain more fully when we get to chapter 7. He says this in verse 7 of chapter 7, Yet it had, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Now, obviously, the law did not make Paul covetous. He was that already. The law just showed him that he was. And so we can ask, how does the law do this? How does the law increase our knowledge of sin? 
specifically? Well, there's four ways. The first one is it defines sin. Before the giving of the law, we were in a sense kind of like children. And you know how it is with them. They have the seeds of sin in them. I hate to disappoint you parents, but they are sinners. They're just smaller ones than we are. And they behave sinfully. But there is a sense in which many of them don't know that what they're doing or what they're inclined to do is sinful. Most children don't. For example, they can be selfish. But they only begin to learn what selfishness is and learn that it is wrong when a teacher or a parent explains to them the importance of sharing. Whether it could be the toys in our nursery here or something at school or if they have brothers or sisters, something at home. But that's when they understand what selfishness is, is when they are confronted with the truth of it. Also, some children are willful, stubborn. But they discover this only when their wills are opposed by a wiser or steadier will of a parent where this parent expresses to them a list of things that they can and cannot do. That's when they realize that they're willful. In the same way, sin is defined for us by the written law of God. Another way that Paul talks about this is that the law turns sin into transgression. All wrong acts are sinful, even without the law. But they, are, they only seem to be sin, they're only seen to be sin, when they're exposed as transgressions by the law of God. Paul said this in Romans 5.13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. People were doing sinful things. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Romans 4.15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So that's first. Second, the law not only defines sin for us, but it reveals sin's nature. You see, the true nature of sin, sin in its very essence, is rebellion against God. But there's a sense in which we sometimes fail to recognize that or understand it until we are confronted with the law pertaining to it. I mean by that most people have a God-given sense of right and wrong. Even the native in the jungle that's never heard about God has a sense of what is right and what is wrong. They're, within their culture, there are things you can do and things you cannot do. But he doesn't know God, and as a result, he doesn't know that, by, that these sins that he's doing, stealing, murdering, assaulting people, whatever it might be, are violations of God's code. And that these sins are actually directed against God. 
that has given him his own moral sensibilities. Here's an example. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then conspired to have her husband killed, he would have known, even if he was an unenlightened heathen in the day, he would have known that he was wrong. Adultery and murder are not condoned anywhere. But because he was also an instructed member of God's chosen race, he saw his sin on a deeper level. And therefore he confessed it to be against God. In Psalm 51.4 he said, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I mean, he had sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against the nation of Israel as their king, but it's only when he saw his sin as being against God that its true horror gripped him. And that's when he was led to confess it openly. So, so the law will show you the nature of your sin. The third thing it will do is it will expose sin's power to you. Let me give you an example. Let's say we have a guy who's a heavy cigarette smoker. And a number of people tell him he should stop. And his reply is that he can stop smoking anytime he wants to. And after all, he proves it by having stopped a dozen times. He really doesn't know or he won't admit that he has a nicotine addiction. So he goes and sees David. David examines him and tells him that his smoking is killing him and orders him to stop with all the authority he possesses. Now this man has a law to deal with. That is the law of his doctor. He's been given instructions on how to behave. All right, he says, I'll stop smoking. I mean, you can imagine what happens. He tries to stop and finds that he really cannot do it. Before, he thought he could. But now with the doctor's law that commands him to stop, he discovers that he can't. He needs help. This is the way with us. And it is this sense of helplessness that has actually been a step in many people's coming to Jesus Christ as their Savior. They suppose that the cure for sin is within, within their own power. I'll just be better. I'll pursue these good things and give up these bad things. And then they find out when they actually attempted their own reformation that it was impossible. And it was then they discovered their spiritual inability and it caused them to turn to Christ. So the law exposes sin's power. But it also, number four, the law unveils sin's deceit. Until we are directly exposed to the law of God, we tend to excuse our conduct, don't we? We call it by some other name. 
you hear euphemisms like moral failure or a mistake or things like that instead of sin. The written law shows us that sin is sin and that it has fooled us into taking it lightly. Only the law exposes the pitfall, uh, pitfalls of sin's path. Martin Lloyd-Jones applies it this way. He says, One of the greatest troubles in the church today, as well as in the world, is that men do not have a knowledge of sin as they should have. Sin is regarded very lightly and loosely. Men are prepared to admit that they need a little help, and that they are weak in this or that respect, but the scripture teaches the depth and the foulness and the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Our fathers, our grandfathers, and especially those who preceded them knew all about this. And it was in such times that great spiritual revivals occurred. It is when men and women realize the depth of iniquity and sin that is in them that they begin to cry out to God. But if men have no real knowledge of sin, if they are lacking in the knowledge of sin which is given only by the law, then they will be content with a superficial evangelism. This is surely one of our main troubles today. I think those words state the case exactly. So the law brings a knowledge of sin, but it doesn't only bring a knowledge of sin by defining it and by exposing its power and its true deceitful nature. It convicts us of sin. And actually, that's what all these four points lead up to. If you take them as you should as a believer, they will lead to conviction of sin. But does the law also do the opposite? Yes, it sometimes can do that. We call it hardening the heart. We'll get to that in a moment. But when the Spirit of God is moving, the preaching of the law brings conviction and teaches that those who have been convicted of sin need to recoil from it. That should be their, their response. Why? Well, it's because the law reveals the sin, again, to be an offense against God. As long as we think of sin only as a violation of some abstract moral code, it won't trouble us very much. We'll just try to get away with it if we can. Sin won't trouble us if we think of it simply as the violation of a law made by other human beings. Why should their will restrict us? Why do they know? what is right and wrong and feel they can pass laws to restrict my behavior. It's just another person. However, when we discover sin to be against the God who made us, the God who's provided us with all good things, then we see it as rebellion against our creator. We see it as an offense and an insult to him then we experience real conviction. In Romans 7, 
where Paul discusses the role of the law at, at great length, he not only says that the entrance of the law gave knowledge of sin, which we've talked about, but he also adds that it awoke sin and allowed sin to produce even more sinful desires. Verse 8, he says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. covetousness. I mean, this really, if, you, if you're honest with yourself, is not hard to understand. Somehow, and for some reason, there's a part of us that whenever we see a law, we have within us a, a subtle desire to break it. I've got to go to Dallas next week to see a doctor, oddly enough. And I... I've gone a lot of times to Dallas. Um, and I know what the speed limits are. And I know that whatever they are, the accepted speed is 5 to 10 miles an hour above that. It's just it's the way it goes. Whenever we see a law, we just have this desire to not abide by it. How about, I don't know if you know your history, prohibition. I'm told, I wasn't here, but I was told that there were many instances of people who did not drink before prohibition who became drinkers during prohibition and that sales of alcohol in some areas actually went up. There's the story of one man. His name is John Nance Garner. Have you ever heard of him? He was the vice president eventually under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But the story is told that after the law prohibiting the sale of alcohol, alcoholic beverages was passed, uh, Garner would greet every visitor to his home by opening a cupboard, taking out a decanter and two glasses, pouring two drinks, and then saying solemnly, let us strike a blow for liberty. <laughs> Patriotic drinking. Or wait, that would be, again, that'd be a rebellious drinking. Rebel against the tyranny. Let us strike a blow for liberty. It's truly the nature of sin. And it is the coming of the law of God that reveals to us our stiff-necked nature. We are just that way. You know, in the, la the last time we met, we talked at great length about grace. We even talked about being saved by grace, being justified by grace. So if grace is going to be one of the topics of the end of this chapter, you might be asking where in the midst of all this definition and exposure of sin does grace come in? And there are several answers to that question. I want to give you two. First, the very exposure of sin is the grace of God. It is an act of grace for God to show us our sin. He didn't have to give us the law. He could have left us in our own ignorance and allowing us in our own sinful blindness to think that all is well with us when actually we were under his wrath and perishing. 
He could have left us to compare ourselves with other people. And you know, you've done that before. And whenever you do that, you always come out thinking you're relatively good. But by giving us the law, God has disabused us of those fantasies and allowed us to see our condition as it truly is. That's grace. The first step in uh, in seeking a doctor is to know that you're sick. The first step in seeking salvation is to know that you need it. And the law tells us that we need it. The second thing, the second reason is the law contained an anticipation of the gospel. So the second answer to the question, where does grace come in, is that it is contained in the gospel. Now you know the law was given in Mount Sinai. There were many visible demonstrations of the presence of God. And God declared what the people of Israel were and were not to do. Let me remind you of some of those. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. But this is precisely the code that we've broken. So what can we do? Here is where the grace of God comes in. For in addition to to giving us the law, this law that exposes our sin, shows us our deep need, well, God at the same time pointed to the sacrifices by which sin might be punished and the guilt of sin might be removed. At the very time that God gave Moses to the people as lawgiver, He gave Aaron and the priests to the people as interceders, those who could intercede on behalf of the people. God showed how when the people sinned, they were to take an animal and present it to the priest who would then kill it and offer it up on the altar. 
It was a way of acknowledging the grim nature of sin and the consequences of sin. Ezekiel 18.4 says that the soul who sins will die. But this was also a way of portraying the grace of God. And it was shown by these sacrifices to be, God was shown to be a God willing to accept the death of an innocent substitute rather than requiring the sinner's own death and condemnation. And all of this pointed forward to the atonement provided by Jesus Christ. So at the same time the law was given, God's grace was demonstrated in that he also provided a way for the people that pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And remember, Jesus did not take the law lightly. Listen to this quote from Philip Hughes. Jesus, when he came to save the world, did not set aside the law. He fulfilled it. That is to say, he kept the law fully without fault or lapse. In contrast to all other men who are lawbreakers, he is the sole law keeper. He alone is without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 and 7 and 1 Peter 2. He alone is full of grace and truth. John 1 and John 14. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. 1 John 2. This perfect obedience of Christ to the law is an essential element in the salvation which he came to procure for us. The first stage of his work of salvation required that as man, he should keep fully the law of God, which mankind had broken. Only thus would he be qualified to offer himself as the spotless Lamb of God in sacrifice for men. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, at the cross, the law of God and the grace of God met. And each was fully satisfied. God's grace saves us from the law's condemnation. And what is more, when we study chapter 6 and chapter 7 to come, that same grace of God enables those who were once lawbreakers to become law keepers. Both the law of God and the grace of God are magnified. I'm going to ask those who are leading in our Lord's Supper ordinance to please come and let's prepare for that.